0: The scripture reading today is from Exodus, chapter 33, verses 12 to 23. Hear the word of the Lord. Moses said to the Lord, See, you have said to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, if I have found favor in your sight, Show me your ways so that I may know you and find favor in your sight. Consider too, that this nation is your people. He said, "My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest." And he said to Sim, and he said to him, "If your presence will not go, do not carry us up from here. Or how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, unless you go with us? In this way we shall be distinct, I and your people, from every people on the face of the earth. The Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing that you have asked, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, show me your glory, I pray. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you the name the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one shall see me and live. And the Lord continued, see, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: This summer, on Sunday mornings, we're preaching from the first five books of the Bible. Dr. Rennick has been focusing on the book of Deuteronomy, where at the end of his life Moses issues a final call to the people of Israel, to covenant faithfulness. Our passage this morning comes from the book of Exodus, and it's an episode that took place at the heart of God's people wandering in the wilderness. They were right in the thick of it. I now want to read a second passage for our consideration from the second chapter of Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, Philippians 2, 1 through 13. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This, too, is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord God, may our hearts be open and our minds alert to how you are moving and what you are saying. To your people through the scripture draw us closer to jesus as a result for we pray in his name amen culture shock i was 22 years old out of college a few months living in the philippines on a year abroad short-term mission with Young Life, and I got whaling, blindsided by culture shock. So much of what I saw and heard there, every word I spoke, most of what I heard, even some of what I ate, was familiar. It was Western in appearance. There were blue jeans. The very first Star Wars movie opened while I was there. I got to see it. I missed it before uh, leaving for the summer. Coca-Cola. There was even a Shakey's Pizza parlor in Bacolod City. It seemed like everywhere I turned, I could see things and know and understand them. Indeed, the Philippines did not appear to be nearly as different as I had expected it to be. I didn't know what I expected, but I didn't expect it to be so familiar. Now, I'd been warned about culture shock, but where was it? I'm sure I was looking for the familiar, no doubt out of some instinct of self-preservation, and so I never had a chance against culture shock. It walked right up to me in plain sight, looked me in the eye, and slapped me silly. I never knew what hit me. Only later did I realize that while so much of the Philippines had a Western appearance on the surface, well, the context was Asian, about which I knew almost nothing. And whereas people spoke English like me, they didn't think like me. It was all right there before my eyes but I couldn't see it. I was plain and simple, not able to see the Eastern culture at work right in front of me and the daily lives of the people that I interacted with. There are times when we are just plain blind to things. A relationship goes sour, we're in it, but somehow we're the last to know. Someone close to us deserves our our appreciation, but for whatever reason, we fail to notice and give our approval. Failure to see what is around us stems from an inability to see anything besides our own perspective. And that's at the core of culture shock. Living in the Philippines was the first time I was really in an unfamiliar environment. I grew up in an all-white Midwestern suburb, attended all-white K through 12 schools, graduated from a mostly white small college in a mostly white city in a mostly white state. I was literally halfway around the world from where I'd spent the first 22 years of living. It was my first time off the North American continent. Now I was able to get on an airplane and fly to Southeast Asia but I lacked the ability to get outside of myself and to see the part of the world where I was living from a very different perspective than my own. Nothing in my life and experience equipped me to see anything other than from my own point of view. I was ignorant of the vast Filipino cultural di- differences and proceeded as though everyone saw and felt and thought the same way that I did. And this blindness caused me to be critical and defensive about things that I thought were just flat wrong. And in fact, they were just different and I didn't understand. I was incredulous when Star Wars didn't even last a week in the theater. Because most Filipinos didn't like it, they didn't understand it, they didn't care about it, they liked a different kind of movie. What was wrong with them? I thought. I didn't comprehend the cultural differences that led to this because I could not take on a different perspective than my own. I didn't even realize that there were different perspectives. So much of what was there was imperceptible to me because it is so very difficult to see things that we don't expect to see. There are some things we simply can't see. And according to our Exodus passage, God is one of those things. You can't see my face, if you do, You will die that is what the Lord told Moses when Moses asked to see God's face in the book of Exodus after God had rescued his people from slavery in Egypt the Israelites had been through several tests tests of faith out there in the wilderness and if you know the stories God's chosen people had failed at just about every test there was leading up to the passage that we read from uh, exodus this morning was the famous incident with the golden calf moses had been up on the mountain with god for a long time while he was busy getting building designs for the tabernacle instructions for sacrificial rituals and the ten commandments when moses comes back down to the israelite camp they're all worshiping an idol they're breaking the first commandment before as as moses walks in among them with them moses lost his temper god had already lost patience up on the mountain so moses anger is undoubtedly mixed with fear of what god's wrath might look like he tells his fellow hebrews that they've blown it they've sinned against god and they've done it at the very place where God had called them to receive divine revelation. Bad timing. Not a good idea to be violating the first commandment when Moses brings it down from the mountain. But Moses after chastising the people severely tells them that maybe he can go to talk to God, smooth things over. So my, Moses goes back up the mountain. And God is still angry. He is ready to do away with them. But Moses reminds God of his covenant promises. Promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God tells Moses to move on from the mountain and into the land of promise. He would spare them. But they would have to go without God. Because he has just had it with this stick stiff-necked people he'll send an angel to lead them instead well Moses is not satisfied Moses knew that the only difference between the Israelites and any other people or nation was having God in their midst having God go with them so Moses keeps pressing God you've got to continue to be with us you've got to be our god you promised to be our god and we would be your people and so in the passage that we read moses goes to the place that he always went to listen to god the the tent of meeting outside the camp and there he appeals to god on the basis of their unique intimate relationship He presses God for proof that he still has God's favor and that God's presence will continue to go with Israel. And God concedes. Not so much because of Moses' power of persuasion, but because Moses recalls in God's presence the promises that God had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is instructive for us as we pray if we don't know what to pray if we're wrestling with God if we're struggling we can always have confidence in our conversation with God if we remind God if we claim the promises that God has made in scripture well the directness of God's reply after Moses finished his plea is nothing less than stunning Moses reminds God of God's own promises And then he basically rests his case in the way that the hebrew grammar works it out there is this simple straightforward reply from god there's no back and forth it's a simple reaffirmation of god's relationship with moses and israel without rejoinder he says i will do everything the very thing that you ask for you have found favor in my sight and i know you my name so there's a relief God is not going to abandon Moses and Israel after all and so this is the most convincing possible testimony of the favor in which the Lord God holds Moses and this emboldens Moses to make one last request because he's looking for that just additional encouragement for the long journey because he knows that he's got a group of stubborn people to leave that God has called him to leave. So Moses asks for one more thing. Show me your glory. The Greek translators of the Old Testament clarify what Moses is really asking when he asks to see God's glory. They simply say that Moses is asking God in the Greek Septuagint, show me yourself yourself your glory show me yourself in other words glory is what you see when you see god face to face and this is made clear in god's reply to moses god knows what moses is asking and he says well i will make my goodness pass before you and i will proclaim before you the name yahweh my name and i will be gracious To whom i will be gracious and will show mercy on whom i will show mercy but god says you cannot see my face for no one shall see me and live and in a tender act of accommodation to moses human inabilities god hides moses in a cleft in the rock covers moses face with a hand so that the divine face does not cause Moses to perish you cannot see my face if you see my face you will die God's statement to Moses is both a warning and a fact you cannot see my face God's telling Moses you you haven't got it in you You're incapable. If you did see my face, you wouldn't see anything because you can't see it. You lack the ability. And by the way, although you wouldn't see anything, it would kill you. (laughs) Human creatures can't see God's face. It's not so much a prohibition as a statement of reality. We simply can't. We lack the capacity. We haven't got what it takes. Such is the gulf, the vast difference between us and God. Aside from the fact that we would perish in the presence of God's face, we simply can't see. And if somehow we did, there would be some type of cosmic culture shock that would kill us. Philippians 2 contains what some have called Paul's famous Christ hymn Paul either borrowed or composed a hymn about who Jesus is and what his purpose on earth was in the hymn we read Jesus Christ who being in the form of God did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited emptied himself taking on the form of a servant Being born in human likeness. This verse seems to be affirming that there is, in fact, a way to see the face of God. And without dying, we see the face of God in Jesus Christ. Here we find the traditional Christian teaching about the Incarnation. But I want to suggest that the message of this familiar passage to most of us that equates Jesus with God at closer inspection is in at least some ways similar to Moses or to God's statement to Moses, which is you cannot see the face of God. Or at least seeing God is perhaps more difficult than we might think even in Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that Jesus existed in the form of God and in an act of humility took on the form of a servant the meaning of this word form is difficult to determine it occurs twice in the new testament both times right here form of God form of a servant one thing does seem straightforward enough whatever it means For Jesus to have been in the form of God, there is a reciprocal meaning that applies to Jesus taking on the form of a servant. To the extent that Jesus is to be identified with God, to that same extent, Jesus is a servant. The New Revised Standard and many other English translations translate the first verse of the hymn, Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped or exploited. Translated in this way, it implies a grand gesture on Jesus' part to become a human being, set aside all privileges of being God. But there's another way to understand Paul's Greek sentence. And it's just as correct grammatically, and it actually makes more sense in the context of the passage when we translate the sentence this way Christ Jesus precisely because he was in the form of God did not consider being equal with God grounds for grasping on the contrary he rather poured himself out by taking the form of a servant by being born in the human in the likeness of human beings if we understand it this way Jesus becomes a servant not out of some grand concession to humanity. Jesus becomes a servant not in a colossal contradiction to the divine nature. It's not the story of the prince and the pauper where royalty switches with poverty but remains royalty. No, Jesus becomes a servant precisely because it is in God's nature to serve. It is in God's nature to be humble. And when it takes on human form, it's the form of a servant. This is an unexpected type of glory. That when glory takes on human form, it serves. A glory that in great love and accommodation shields Moses from the divine face and the cleft of the rock. A glory that in humility takes on the form of a human being. And dies the death of a common criminal who would have ever dreamed that God's glory could look like that it's culture shock contrary to what many in the ancient world thought about God our passage tells us that God's true nature is characterized not by selfish grabbing but by open-handed giving the compassionate love of a Heavenly Father giving a hand to shield the giving of a brief glimpse of God's backside for courage The giving up of the only begotten in the form of a servant to die for the sins of the world. Moses asked to see God's glory, God's face. Jesus shows what this looks like. As Paul writes, we see the glory of God. We see God's face in the actions of Jesus who emptied himself and took on the form of a humble servant. He gave up an exalted status, was born as a human being, sacrificed his heavenly rights and privilege to be the embodiment of humble servant, a humble service. I've, I've learned a few things about different cultures and culture shock since my early 20s. I've learned what it means to cross cultural boundaries and allow the perspective and experience of others, their gifts and needs, to have a more important place than my own perspective. Paul exhorted the Philippian Christians to have the same mind as Christ. What would it look like for us as the body of Christ at National Presbyterian Church to follow Paul's exhortation? To be of the same mind, to have the same love, to be in full accord and of one mind with each other, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, regarding others as better than ourselves. I think we find a model for how best to honor those different than us by looking at what God did in the Incarnation. By becoming human in jesus christ paul tells us that god humbled himself and took on the form of a servant jesus gave up heaven surely we can let go of some of our interests and look to the interests of others i think if we learned to listen more to those who are different than we are to restrain our innate desire to win arguments to regard others as better than ourselves that we would begin to glimpse the glory of God and we would overcome the cultural divide and there would be less culture shock among us. This past week, we witnessed something historical when Congress created a new federal holiday to mark the day that the news of the end of slavery reached people in the deepest parts of the former Confederacy in Galvin, Texas on June 19th, 1865. Juneteenth. Until a year ago, I really didn't know anything about this important day for African Americans. And I wonder how many white people like me know its history and significance for our country. In 1852, Frederick Douglass was the escaped slave who became a famous abolitionist orator and writer, addressed the citizens of his hometown, Rochester, New York, on the 76th anniversary of the the signing of the Declaration of Independence. The title of his speech, you may know, was What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? He famously made the point that for the enslaved population of America, there was no independence to celebrate. This Fourth of July is yours, not mine, he said. You may rejoice. I must mourn. On this historic Juneteenth weekend, I think one step many of us who are white Christians could take toward regarding others as better than ourselves. And in so doing, strive to be of the same mind that was in Christ Jesus and overcome the cultural divides. If we would have a conversation with each other about this question, What to the fortunate white American is Juneteenth? Perhaps this is a step that you might take. Perhaps you've already taken it. Maybe you'll feel led to take some other step. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to follow in his footsteps. To see God's glory in the Savior's humility. And to seek to imitate him confident that God is working within us, enabling us both to will and to work for his good pleasure, and thus to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. One thing is clear. Jesus saw God's glory. Whether we see God's face or not, we know that Jesus did. And one way that we know that is because Jesus died. If you see my face, you will die. Jesus died because he did see God and because so many who caused his death do not. The cause of Jesus' death was culture shock. Let us pray Lord God grant us humble hearts and lives that we might reflect your glory that is revealed in our Lord Jesus Christ in his name we pray Amen